Well, good morning, church family, and um, just feels like I want to just go <sighs> exhale a little bit and just um, enjoy some of the peace that, that Katie was encouraging us toward. I'm so grateful for that song that God is sovereign over everything that comes into my life, and even though I may not understand it, He does, and we're going to trust Him. And uh, I hope that that trust brings you some peace this morning. Um, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I just want to extend a very warm welcome. My name is Randy, and uh, I'm privileged to serve as the lead minister here at the church. And uh, we just hope that you're able to um, spend some fruitful time with the Lord today at Windsor Road. Um, we're glad that you're here. Everyone hopefully received a welcome card as they came in, and um, if you're feeling new here at the church, I'm going to be at a place called the Fireside Room just after our services. They're through these glass doors and to the right, and I'd be happy to meet with you uh, personally and um, pray with you. Uh, I'd love to meet you, and if you, uh, if you care to do that, well, I'll, be, I'll be in that place. And if you're interested in just connecting a little more with our church family, um, I send out a Friday email that kind of tells uh, what's going on in our weekend services, and you can sign up for that uh, if you'd like and begin receiving that this next Friday. Um, as those of you who received our last Friday email know that we are in a series on the family. We started a series last week called Family on Purpose, and uh, this week we're going to talk about uh, setting a purposeful pace, setting a purposeful pace uh, in our family. Um, family researcher Ellen Galinsky once did a national study, and that study was called Ask the, Ask the Children. Ask the Children. It was a nationwide study where she interviewed children ages 8 to 18, and as a part of that study, she asked this question of them. Here's the question. If you were granted one and only one wish to change the way your mother or father's work affected your lives, what would that wish be? If you were granted one and only one wish to change the way your mother or father's work affected your lives, what would that be? I'm wondering what you think about that question. I'm wondering what you think they would say to that question. You get one and only one wish granted concerning your mom and dad's work that would change family life. Well, what do you think they said? Don't bring it home. What else? More time. Yeah. You know what? Both of those actually were on the survey that children actually did say that. You know? Uh, and... But that's not the most important thing that they said. It's really interesting. That was an important thing they said, but it wasn't the most important thing that most of the children age 8 to 18 across the country said about their parents. Here it is. Most of them wished, this was the one wish, that if it could be granted, most of them wished that their parents could be, here it is, less stressed, less tired, and less busy. They wanted more time. 
But most of them said, I just want mom and dad to be less stressed, less tired, and less busy. Huh? And what's interesting is that only 2% of the parents surveyed thought that that's what they would say. They just kind of missed it, huh? Wow. Less stressed, less tired, less busy. So how are you doing in that area? Huh? Well, let's take a quiz. All right? Let's take the am I too busy quiz. Here we go. These are just yes, no statements. You don't have to shout it out. So just keep it in your head. <laughs> I often commit to things when I don't know how much time or energy it will require. Yes or no? I never feel like I've accomplished enough at the end of the day. Yes or no? I have difficulty saying no. I often miscalculate how long certain activities will take. I feel anxious without my cell phone. I feel like I have to answer every text immediately. I am answering a text right now during Randy's sermon. Right? <laughs> I rarely have time to do the things I love. I feel powerless over my time and commitments. Right? So I wonder how you did. I think we know. I struggle with this too. I mean, this quiz gets us thinking about setting a purposeful pace. A purposeful pace. And I'd like you to consider the story of someone named Katrina Alcorn. Katrina Alcorn. Um, at 37 years of age, Katrina Alcorn. Three children, a good marriage, thriving career. People used to ask her, Katrina, how do you do it all? How do you do it all? People at her son's preschool. People at the Y, where she took her daughter to swim lessons. People at the web consulting agency where she managed a team of designers. People like the editor of the publishing firm that offered her a contract to write a design book. Even her own husband. How do you do it all? How do you do it all? And then on a Saturday afternoon in the spring of 2009, while driving to Target to buy diapers, Katrina broke down. And this is what she wrote. It wasn't my car that broke down. It was me. I just had to pull over to the side of the road. My hands were shaking. Uh, I, I was barely able to break the car. I called my husband. I sobbed. I cannot do this anymore. Katrina wrote, and thus ended my career, and thus began a journey into crippling depression, anxiety, and insomnia, medication, meditation, and therapy. I had a nervous breakdown. And then she wrote this. She said, I, I really should define what nervous breakdown meant in my case. I didn't feel suicidal or psychotic. I didn't get strung out on heroin. I didn't walk around downtown Berkeley yelling at garbage cans. I didn't act outwardly crazy in any way. I simply stopped. You know, the way a watch stops when the battery dies. 
I could not get my body to obey what my mind kept saying it should do. One Monday, I was giving a presentation to a potential client, and on Tuesday, I was at home on my couch, weeping, incapacitated. I never went back to work. I never even cleaned out my files. I didn't plan to stop going to the job I love and had had for six years. But when I thought about going back to work, I just felt like I was going to vomit. Katrina Alcorn tells her story in a fascinating book called Maxed Out, American Moms on the Brink. And her story touches on the toxic effects of an out-of-control pace of life. And it just seems like the word speed is in our American language. I mean, you know, we're not busy, we're crazy busy. We have words like rush hour, time crunch, speed dial, expressway. We drink instant coffee. We eat sub so fast you'll freak. We send our stuff by Federal Express. and We use cell phones by Sprint. We balance our books with Quicken. And we swim in trunks made by Speedo. <laughs> but according to one historian, according to one historian, no one knows where we're going. The the aim of life has been forgotten. The end has been left behind. Man has set out at a tremendous speed to go nowhere. Tim Kreider wrote one of the most popular articles in the New York Times, an article called The Busy Trap. Listen to what he says. He says... For some of us, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Because obviously your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand, every hour of the day. Tim wrote, I once knew a woman who interned at an entertainment magazine where she wasn't allowed to take lunch hours out lest she be urgently needed for some reason. This was an entertainment magazine, for crying out loud. It's not like she worked at NORAD or anything. We walk fast, we talk fast, we eat fast, and then we say, sorry, I got to run. But God is not running after us. Because he knows that speed does not generate devotion. In fact, in fact, the more hurried and harried we are, the greater the distance is between where we're running to and where God is waiting. Let me put it this way. The faster we pace our lives, the less we feel God's presence. The faster we pace our lives, the less we feel God's presence. Just last fall, I found limits to my pace. After a jammed week of meetings, which included a two-day strategic planning session in order to figure out how to use this blessing that God has provided in our facilities updates. 
After two days of that, after regular staff check-ins, after an extra speaking engagement, after a small group night, after grief counseling, after wedding planning, and then after 20 hours of weekly sermon preparation, my plate was full. On Friday of that week, I had a wedding rehearsal scheduled at 4 p.m. And then I had a funeral scheduled Sunday after services at 4 p.m. So my mind just kind of thought that the wedding ceremony would be at 4 p.m. on Saturday. But on Saturday afternoon at 2.50 p.m., the alarm on my phone went off. And I thought, now what in the world was that all about? And then I realized, and I panicked. My 4 p.m. wedding was actually at 3 p.m. And there I was in the basement of my home, unshaven, in a sweatshirt, pair of jeans, sneakers, and a ball cap. Yep. You got that picture in your mind? Yeah, it's not really pretty. I screamed for Sarah, who was on the second floor of our home, and in the course of eight minutes, I'd shaved, suited up, and got in the car. Sarah had to drive. I was so shaken, and I have no idea how many traffic laws she broke getting me there. (laughs) And I was ten minutes late to the wedding, and I was emotionally distraught, I was embarrassed, and I just felt terrible. I just felt terrible. And the bride and the groom were phenomenally gracious to me. Phenomenally gracious. And as I just told them the truth, I said, here's what happened. And, uh, and you know, their greatest concern was about me. They, they thought something had happened to me. And something did happen to me. I had exceeded my limits. And it had, it had those effects. So it was a wake-up call. Church family, we have limits. And when we exceed those limits, our bodies keep score. So I want us to talk this morning about setting a purposeful pace. And to do that this morning, I'd like for us to consider a story. I want us to hear a story from the Bible. And then I want us to learn a lesson. And then I want to ask a question. All right? Story, lesson, question. That's where we're going. First, the story. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42 And you'll find Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, on page 869, page 869 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, there's a church Bible in the pouch in front of you. Take it, put your name in it, and uh, just take it home with you as a gift from this church family. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, 
Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. So these verses tell us in verse 38, that Jesus and his followers made their way to a village where a woman named Martha lived with her sister, Mary. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us is how many followers there were with Christ. There could have been as many as a hundred. If you glance back up to the beginning of Luke chapter 10, you'll see a section where Jesus sends out 72 to minister in his name, and then they uh, you know, have returned. And Well, I, there could have been as many as a hundred. And that was a culture of hospitality. And your home was opened, and guests would be treated well. And Martha, as the head of the house, is managing all of this. And, and Jesus, out of their friendship, is just making himself at home at in her home, and, and, and he's turning her home into a classroom where he's teaching. We see that in verse 39. Martha's sister, Mary, it says, she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, you know, many paintings, such as this one here from the 16th century, uh, you know, render this dear woman... Mary, you know, kind of literally sitting at Jesus' feet and kind of lovingly gazing with starry eyes into the eyes of this really nice single Hebrew man. But that's really not what's going on here in these verses. I want you to pay attention to the phrase, sat at the Lord's feet. That's an important phrase. That's a word picture. Luke, who was the author of this gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Luke uses this phrase concerning the apostle Paul. When in 22.3, Luke says that Paul was educated at the feet of, at the feet of Gamaliel. So at the feet is a word picture for to study under, to become a student of, to become a disciple of. And not simply for the purposes of just learning or self-education or self-enrichment, but for the purposes of becoming a teacher. You see what's going on here? Mary is training as a student to become a teacher of the Word. But here's the deal. Theirs was a, a patriarchal culture. And in that first century Hebrew patri patriarchal culture, homes had spaces for male and females. And so a man and a woman might share space outside where the children would play. A husband and wife would share space in the sanctity of the marriage bedroom. But elsewhere in the house, the public room would be a place where only the men would meet. And the other spaces in the home, unseen by the guests, that would be where the women would meet and mingle. It was their culture. First century Hebrew 
culture. It was an invisible boundary, yet one clearly marked by their culture. And so, Mary is clearly where her culture insists that she shouldn't be, in a room full of men, taking her place as a prospective gospel preacher. I mean, who does she think she is? What are the neighbors going to think? What's the family going to think? This is outrageous. This is inappropriate. I like how one scholar, N.T. Wright, said concerning these verses, Mary stands for all those women who, when they hear Jesus speaking about the kingdom, know that God is calling them to listen carefully so that they can speak of it too. Mary. Wow. Well, then there's Martha. She's multitasking in in the kitchen. I mean, she's got the bread in the oven and she's checking the roast chickens and the green bean casserole and the scalloped potatoes and the lamb kebabs. Have you ever had dry lamb kebabs? Please, please. And she's trying to multitask and she turns and she, where did Mary go? What's going on? What is she doing? Can you feel her exasperation, her messy apron, her disheveled hair, her sweaty forehand, and then that wooden spoon in her hand? Verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. Martha was distracted with much serving. Yet it was Martha who thought Mary was the one distracted. But no, Martha was the one. But she didn't know that, did she? So it's interesting. You know, instead of peeking her head from around the corner and you know, eyeballing Mary and go, waving her back with the wooden spoon, you know. No, what, what does she do? She talks to Jesus. She says, Lord, Lord. It's a word that means master. Now, if I call you Lord or I call you master, what have I just done? I've defined the relationship. That's what. So if I call you Lord, that means you give the commands and I take the commands. You give the orders. And I take the orders. That's what that means when I call you Lord. But that's not what happens, is it? Martha calls Jesus Lord and then proceeds to give him a command. (laughs) Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And so now it's gone beyond Mary. She's accusing God. Listen, listen. When you live outside your limits... When you live in constant overload, when the pace of your life goes unchecked, you will then start demanding that others meet the unrealistic expectations and pace that you yourself can't even meet. And with wooden spoon in hand, you go after God. Now let me give you a heads up. Whenever you tell Jesus to fix someone else's life to your satisfaction, Jesus will always start with you. Okay? That's what's going on here. He says, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many 
things. So how do I know if my life is in overload? How, how do I know if I've exceeded the pace and the limits? How do I know? Let's listen to what Luke has to say. He uses the word distraction. uses the word anxious and troubled. Okay? Those are the effects. Distracted, anxious, and troubled. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. You hear what Jesus is saying? Martha, Martha, you know, when I come over to your place, I don't need Silver Creek. Okay? Five guys and fries will do. Right? Really? If I, Martha, if I wanted Silver Creek, I would make it happen myself. In fact, I have. He says, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Good portion. Good portion. That's actually... A food term. That's actually a term that is in reference to the portion of a meal. It's a play on words. Jesus is saying, Martha, you're feeling hurried and stressed and overloaded about the meal portions that you want to serve. And I really appreciate that. I really do. But Martha, the meal has already been served out here. The meal of my word. Martha, we're eating out here. I wish you would join us. I wish you would join us. So Mary is reenacting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, And God humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Martha is starving in the kitchen while the feast is going on in the room. And she found herself so deep in the details of the meal that she lost sight of the point of the meal, which is to enjoy the company of the guest whom you have invited into your home. And that's important for any guest, but when the guest is Jesus, God has visited her home. And, and, and by the way, church family, this is not a sin issue. It's not a sin issue. Martha wasn't doing anything wrong. Martha was trying to serve, right? She was trying to do the work of the Lord. But the way she was doing the work of the Lord was poisoning the Lord's work in her heart and in her soul. So this isn't a sin issue, it's a wisdom issue. What is the wise thing to do? And what is the wise thing to do? Well, that leads us to the lesson. Right? We've heard the story, and now here's the lesson. And the lesson is this. What's wise is living a life of love for God and others. 
There it is. Jesus wants my life to reveal my love for God and others. Jesus wants my life to reveal my love for God and others. Jesus wants my schedule to reveal my love for God and others. Jesus wants my calendar to, re- to reveal a life of love for God and others. Jesus wants my date book to reveal a life of love for God and others. Je- Jesus wants me busy, but there's a difference between busy and hurried. Busy and rushed. Busy and frantic. Busy and frazzled. Jesus wants me busy doing life that shows love for God and others. Martha, Martha, you are troubled and anxious about many things, but only one thing is necessary. You know, we value the volume of many things, and we call that productivity. God values the importance of the one thing, and he calls it fruitfulness. We value the impression we make it. Plate spinning, many things. God values the life whose soul focused is lived before an audience of one. We value the futility of getting nowhere faster. God values the wisdom of choosing one long obedience in the same direction toward an eternal end. Only one thing is necessary. A life of love for God and others. And guess what? Guess what? At times, a life of love calls for service and action. It does. It's no coincidence that these verses follow Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You can see that there in verses 25 to 37. It's a parable about horizontal love for someone in need. And at the conclusion of that Section, Jesus said, go and do likewise. So you see, love is horizontal and such love is fueled vertically by an intentional vertical relationship with the God of this universe who wants to mentor us and tutor us and fill us and replenish us with his word. So you see, there are going to be times to go and do And then there are going to be times to sit and listen. And you might be saying, well, but okay, how do I discern which? Well, it's no coincidence that just following this paragraph on Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, give us a paragraph about prayer. Where I realize that the wisdom required to know the difference between going and doing and sitting and listening, that requires point-blank line of scrimmage, wisdom from heaven, and Jesus promises us that he will give it to us when we ask. Luke chapter 11, verse 13 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If ever we lack wisdom... We ask, and God will give us that wisdom so that we'll know the difference between when it's time to go and do and when it's time to sit and listen. Doing the one thing necessary is a spiritual skill lived out one day at a time. And it yields a life of love for God and others. That's the story. 
That's the lesson. Now you're maybe asking, what in the world does this have to do with my calendar? Here's the question. Here's the question. You know, I could give you seven tips for calendar management or five steps to do this or seven ways to tighten your schedule. You know, I could do that. I just want to give you one question. If you will sit still with this question and think about it, church family, it would go a long way to living life at a purposeful pace. And what I'm about to share with you comes from a book that our small group uh, went through not long ago called Simplify. Simplify. Go something like this. A lot of people ask a very good question when it comes to calendar keeping. And it's the question, what needs to get done? What needs to get done? And we just make a list of all the activities that need to get done. And then we try to plug it in, do the most urgent, then the less urgent, the less, the less. And then by the end of the day, we plop our head down on the pillow and say, God, pull me through another one tomorrow. What needs to get done? That's a good question. Here's a better question. Here it is. What kind of a person do I want to become? What kind of a person do I want to become? A more present spouse? A more restful parent? A more physically responsible person? A more grateful employee? A more strategic-minded leader? Someone who can take the stairs two at a time without huffing and puffing at the top? Less of a stranger to God? What kind of a person do I want to become? That is a game-changing question that requires us to sit still and listen. It's, it's really not a going and doing question. It's a sitting still and listening question. Do we have the discipline? Do we have the courage to do that? And if that's an important question for us and our lives, what about our children? Parents, we need to ask more than What activities do I want them to do? We need to ask, what do I want them to become? What do I want them to become? And parents, it is our responsibility to shepherd them with that question while they're under our roof. Surely you are not going to let a nine-year-old answer that question all by himself, are you? Who would do that? And who would let himself or herself be ruffled by the harsh parental critique of an unhappy 10-year-old or 19-year-old? What do I want to become? Too often, we use our calendars to reactively schedule our activities from all the requests we get, and then we blame our calendars for how hurried we are, as if we are the victims, as if we have no choice in the matter. We say, well, it's not my fault, it's my boss's fault, it's my family's fault, it's my teammate's fault, it's my kid's coach's fault. I mean, some of us really think that we are mere victims of the very commitments and responsibilities we've said yes to. Jesus is pushing us on this. He's pushing us. He's pushing us to use our calendars to forge character. He wants our pace of life to be the fertile soil from which the fruit of the Spirit would grow. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And friends, you cannot do that in the HOV lane. I need to remember that my calendar is more than just an organizational tool for all the activities I want to do. My calendar is a compass pointing me to be the kind of person that God wants me to become. So what does my calendar need to look like to see the life of Christ come alive in my life? Who, who are you in these verses? Who are you? Mary? I mean, do you want to look like her? Do you want to be focused, dedicated, tuned in, eagerly learning? Feel yourself more like Martha, maybe? Distracted, troubled, anxious, torn apart, divided. Is your calendar causing that? Well, who schedules those things? And you may object, yeah, but my kids may not be able to. To which Jesus says, and? Yeah, but what are they going to think? Jesus says, yeah, they probably won't be happy, will they? Look at these verses here. Do you sense that Mary was the least bit concerned about what Martha thought about her? No, she wasn't. And do you know why she wasn't? Because she was enjoying Jesus. And people who enjoy Jesus don't get flustered about what other people think. What kind of a person do you want to become? I mean, it's a game changer. What kind of a person does God want me to become? What would your schedule look like if God were in charge of it? Here's what I learned that weekend last fall. I learned that a hurried, stressed out, frenzied congregation does not need a hurried, stressed out, frenzied pastor. So it was a wake-up call for me. And I have to say no more than I say yes. For God's glory and our benefit. And I hate to say no to you. But I am day by day learning the wisdom of something John the Baptist said. John the Baptist was asked, by people, who are you? And he said this, I am not the Christ. And I've memorized that. I am not the Christ. But I know who is. And I know what he can do. Isaiah 41, verses 19 and 20 says, I will plant trees in the barren desert, cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, cypress, fir, pine. I'm doing this so all who see this miracle 
will understand what it means. That it is the Lord who has done this. The Holy One of Israel who created it. Church family, we will not say no to more craziness until we can say yes to more Jesus. And until then, we will keep choosing cheap dinner rolls over the bread of heaven. We will choose the fanfare of the world over the feet of Jesus. We will choose busyness over blessing. And it's not immoral to be overwhelmed. It's just unnecessary. It's unnecessary to live a life with more craziness than we want because we have less Jesus than we need.